Welcome back to another episode of Radical Narrative. It has been a while. However, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be sitting here recording this for you. My name is Mylon Tatusis, and I am your host coming at you from Treaty 6 territory, the Prairie region in central Canada, in the middle of Turtle Island, north of Montana, but in my indigenous territory, in my home territory. Today on the episode, I'm bringing you a rebroadcast of an episode I did back in July with our friends over there at Southpaw. If you haven't followed Southpaw, be sure to follow them. If MMA is your thing, if liberation martial arts is your thing, Southpaw are the people to follow. They do some amazing fight studies. They do some amazing interviews and have an amazing liberation-based martial arts curriculum out there you can gain access to through their Patreon. In this episode, Sam is joined by activists Emma Taylor and Mylan Tatusis for an anti-colonial discussion on de-escalation and community care. I really hope you enjoy it. If you like Radical Narrative, if you like what we do, be sure to like, subscribe, and share. Share us on your social media. If you want to donate to us financially, there's links on our Instagram and links here in the show notes. I don't want to keep you much longer. Again, it feels great to be back. Thank you for your love, support, and your patience as we've been adjusting to new changes in our lives. And as always, be sure to stay tuned and listen in. This is Sam. And this is Southpaw. On this special episode of Southpaw, I wanted to have a conversation around de-escalation because I think it's an important topic if it's done the right way. Done the wrong way, and it can erase all the violence marginalized communities face, as well as victim blame, and make it all about personal responsibility and individual choices. So doing it the right way starts with framing. Frameworks allow for discovery while avoiding pitfalls, which is a key concept within the liberation martial arts curriculum. Secondly, we have to have the right guests and the right guests kind of fell into my lap. Mylan Tatusis is a past guest, but also someone I talk to all the time about related topics like community care and kinship networks, parenting, martial arts, lateral violence, trauma, and staying wholesome and not taking our frustrations out on others. So Mylan, can you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, my name is Mylan Tatusis. I'm up here in uh, Saskatchewan, Canada, Treaty 6 territory, um, father of two, uh, do, have been doing community work in Indigenous communities you know, for quite some time, and, and it's the work that my late father um, has done in the past, and also uh, my mother, who still uh, is a social worker, uh, has her own uh, private practice based in a community. Um, so that's sort of my background. Um, also, obviously, so your listeners will likely know that uh, the host of Radical Narrative. And through Mylan, I met Emma Taylor, who I'm sure will have lots to share in this discussion. Emma, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Um, my name's Emma. I was born uh, 
in Treaty 4 territory here in Canada. I'm currently living in Treaty 6 territory. That's kind of where I've grown up. Um, I, my background is pretty Métis Irish. Um, currently, I'm working for a harm reduction nonprofit in Treaty 6 territory as well. Um, I'm a frontlines worker on the opioid and housing epidemic. And I'm also involved in a lot of grassroots work in similar realms, but um, expanding as well to broader issues regarding Indigenous sovereignty and anti-colonialism, anti-capitalism. And for people who don't already know, I'm Sam. I'm a Korean born in one Korea, which was cleaved in half by the empire I currently reside in, the U.S., I've been training in martial arts since I was six and now teach the Liberation Martial Arts Program. So I've been thinking and writing about martial arts from a liberatory Marxist decolonial perspective for a while now. And to go back to the first intent about proper framing, I want to explain why we're covering this topic in earnest now, and it's probably not the last time I'll cover this. In all of our content, when we talk about violence, whether it's by pen or policy, or more directly through fists or guns, we wanted to prioritize violence against marginalized and oppressed communities, which also includes women and children. Othering and power asymmetries are characteristics of violence. I think about all the times violence or the potential for violence has come to me. Most of those times, it was because of my race. And if someone has the objective to hurt you, then that's the reality you have to orient yourself to. But I remember in one of my conversations with Mylan, he said he was interested in grappling over striking because what if violence is coming from drunk uncle and you just want to restrain him from hurting himself or others? The subtext of this conversation was de-escalation. Now, there have still been times where the potential for violence came to me and it wasn't race motivated or race was just one motivator among others. And by violence, it's bi-directional. I too can do violence to others. I remember a recent altercation where a stranger got right in my face and wanted to fight me. We never met before and never had any previous interactions. And there were some signs that this person was having some break from reality. And I don't know if the cause was a substance or a mental health episode or both, but I was able to de-escalate it by trying to distract, connect, listen, no set of movements, no posturing. But my four-year-old was there and I was putting him in the car seat and this guy was right in my face. So I was making sure I was a barrier between him and my son. My wife got in the driver's seat and I was able to get in and we took off. This was at a local park, and basically the whole park emptied out. It's a mostly white park, and the only one who was watching us and yelling for him to get away and for us to leave was the only brown mom there. So even her as a witness and voicing herself let me know someone was watching, gave me a little bit more confidence, and she was already being more than a bystander. And we kind of drove slowly to also watch her get in her car with her family and leave without incident. And even though this isn't a good event to have happened, a friend of mine said it was probably best this happened to me rather than anyone else because I can de-escalate myself to be calm enough to de-escalate him and get away without any violence because it's not just about what could have happened to someone else or me, but also what could have happened to him. He's a big dude with a shaved head, tattoos, a tank top, and baggy shorts. 
So let's say it escalated to violence and then the cops came. So it's not just about what would have happened to me, but what would the cops in this fancy white neighborhood have done to him? Like, would this have been some viral video clip of cop violence? I definitely didn't want that. But also in the car, we had to make sure our son was okay and not scared or dwelling on what happened. But he was fine. And since it didn't escalate, he didn't think too much of it because I also didn't want to escalate my son with my behavior during that moment. Now, I said the potential for violence, but this guy wasn't yet being violent. And I saw a path where this didn't have to end in violence. But I was making sure I was perceiving him, saw where his hands were, what his demeanor was like. And basically, if I wasn't moving quickly, neither was he. And since I've been an adult, and even as a doorman at a bar, I've been able to de-escalate a lot of incidents and also sometimes de-escalate myself to prevent further danger. Like the whole punch a Nazi thing. Yes, it makes for a great meme, but context matters. In the videos I've seen where a Nazi gets punched, the Nazi didn't know how to fight. He wasn't expecting the punch. It was in a crowded situation and the person punching had more numbers. So in that context, it can make sense because you're in an advantageous situation. But if you were isolated and alone with no bystanders and the Nazi is bigger than you and they're with their friends and they happen to yell slurs at you while passing you by, do you punch them or do you let them pass and you then get the hell out of there? In that situation, you're at a major disadvantage and it's probably best to de-escalate yourself and escape. So even in a racist incident, you can de-escalate, but the person you're de-escalating is probably yourself. Some guys in a car yell some sexually offensive stuff at my wife one time while she was walking with the stroller when our son was still a baby. She chased after them, but then stopped herself and realized that's probably not a good idea. So de-escalation wasn't for them, it was for her, even though it's them who are the aggressors and doing the wrong. But in the end, it would have been her and my son getting hurt. So do you want to be right or do you want to live? So to properly frame things, we need to properly define things. And de-escalation sounds like an academic way of saying, calm down. And the last thing you want to tell someone who needs to calm down is to calm down. So I really wanted to call it pausing. But if I said that, no one will understand the topic. So I stuck with de-escalation as the topic term. But as you can see in the examples I gave, I'm using de-escalation as a broad, flexible term. I define de-escalation as reducing or lowering arousal to pause and make a plan. And often the person you are de-escalating is yourself or someone you know. Even at the workplace, there have been times I've been mad, panicked, anxious, scared, and I have to lower my arousal for the sake of my job. As parents, we call this emotional regulation and we teach it to our kids all the time. So it's something we already do and it's already useful. And that's something that only exists in workplace safety training. I can teach you all the martial arts techniques you want, but if you're not in a psychological state to apply it, what does it matter? You have to deescalate yourself to even use it. You have to deescalate yourself like putting on your own air mask before you can deescalate others. So let's start here. What do you two think about this working definition? Yeah, I think, I think it's exactly that. Um, yeah, de-escalation is all about managing yourself, managing the environment, um, 
more so than managing the other person. And the idea is that as long as you're maintaining those two things to the best of your ability, uh, that's going to create space for the other person to kind of return to a baseline. What do you mean by space? Well, creating space in this terms of like, not necessarily a physical space, but also creating like um, an environment of uh, removing, um, yeah, removing any access to weapons, crowd controlling, uh, maintaining the energy um, so that it's, you know, you're not escalating, the people around are not escalating, um, things like that, managing the environment, essentially. Mylan, what about you? For me, like to identify myself, I'm I'm a native dude. Like I'm um cisgendered, long hair, um, broad shouldered. I'm I'm a big guy, and there's a certain privilege in that. I would say when it comes to like physical space, holding space, um, like obviously, you know, I'm I'm a visible minority here in Saskatoon, and uh, it does get uncomfortable. But at the same time, it, it for me it depending on the personal or like the professional approach of what what capacity am I working in depending on situations um like having to measure and uh see really um what's going on in a situation I think is first and foremost um important like really assessing it and getting a feel for what's taking place um like the examples you gave especially as a father they're examples that I could relate to um things that are on the back of my mind, especially in like the political social climate we're living in. Um, but at the same time, for me, it's, it's really a matter of like picking the battle, so to speak. Um, cause there's situations where I'll just walk away from, you know, there's situations where I, I'm not necessarily involved in, but if it comes down to like what we're going to talk about, uh, like community care or kinship and people I'm related to, then in my mind, there is a certain, uh, duty to respond, but that's also, uh, it's also important to measure like what capacity do I have to be useful in that situation. Um, but I, I like the assessment and, and your analysis of having this conversation because it is something that, especially for me at my stage in fatherhood, um, that's something, it's something I reflect on too constantly. Emma, how do you teach de-escalation and what are the steps to de-escalation? Yeah. So, um, there's not necessarily steps to de-escalation. Um, I more so would refer to it as strategies or tools. Uh, and the reason for that is that it's important to not be rigid in the process of de-escalation because um, it can come off as very clinical, um, which is reads as very disingenuous and sometimes dehumanizing, uh, particularly with the, the uh, population that I work with. Um, they're very used to be tr being treated in a very clinical or dehumanizing manner. Um, and so the important thing is to kind of make that human connection. Um, so yeah, your approach should always be organic and natural. Um, but some of the strategies, obviously the first and most important one being to regulate yourself. Um, so that's kind of maintaining a calm demeanor, not being reactionary, um, knowing when to step away if you need to. Um, and I also think it's important to kind of constantly assess situations and decide for yourself whether or not you are legitimately unsafe or if you are just uncomfortable, um, because that's kind of going to help you regulate your responses as well. Um, active listening is a huge one as well. Um, 
applying emotional first aid, which I can kind of get into a bit more. Um, it just essentially involves a lot of co-regulation, um, caring gestures, things like that. I, uh, as controversial as it may be for health nuts, um, cigarettes are one of the best de-escalating tools you could ever have. Because you're also connecting. It's yeah, it's a caring gesture. It's a connection. Um, and also, again, um, for us as Indigenous people, tobacco is seen as medicine. Um, so especially if you're working with, uh, again, the community I work with is largely Indigenous. Um, there's cultural connotations to that as well at times. Um, another big one is avoiding power struggles, uh, which is, can be really tricky. Um, it's you kind of are constantly having to either drop or change your expectations of the situation and the outcomes, um, validating people's feelings, even if you don't agree with them. Um, and then kind of, as I was mentioning earlier, managing the environment is also a huge um, uh, factor in some deescalization strategies. And by being too clinical, what comes to mind is like, I've had a lot of different trainings in my life where when they talk about showing the other person that you're listening, you repeat what they just said. And I've always found that if you actually do that, the other person feels like you're doing something by the book or almost like mocking them or like you're not really connecting. You're just going off of a script. Yeah, that's definitely an example of it. Um, anything I think that would occur outside of a natural conversation you would be having with another person, uh, people pick up on that, right? And and they're aware that they're being therapized or, you know, whatever's going on that, that, that they don't want. Um, and it often inadvertently will escalate, like you said, because, you know, they're aware that you're not approaching them and engaging them as another person who genuinely cares. You're, you're operating from some sort of a, of a rule book or guidebook that you have been trained on. And yeah, it just it can be very disingenuous. Or doing it as part of a job when it's apparent that that's what you're doing can also escalate then. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm sure you've had a lot of experience in this area where I'm sure you've had to first make sure you were calm enough to apply what you know. Then you had to manage the situation. So can you speak to us about that, some of your experiences? Uh, yeah. So... <sighs> I, there's quite a few experiences I could kind of call on. Um, but I think when it comes to especially de-escalating yourself and uh, making sure that you're ready and prepared to engage in a de-escalation, um, again, kind of going back to that, am I unsafe or am I uncomfortable? Um, and there's actually, I've seen a pretty good infographic that's been circulating online regarding this uh, lately. Um, and so essentially, we read a lot of situations in which we are uncomfortable as unsafe. And that immediately causes us to escalate ourselves and kind of enter that fight or flight response. Um, and the reason for that is usually based in stereotypes or stigma. Um, and of course, if you're in a situation that requires de-escalation, de um, the risk of danger exists but it's not always imminent, essentially, especially with a mental health crisis. Um, it can look very big and scary, but it's, it's usually not going to end that in, in what you have envisioned in your mind, right? So 
it's always important to kind of check in with yourself um, and, and ask yourself, am I unsafe right now or am I just uncomfortable with what's happening? I guess this is why media portrayals can be so damaging. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you watch however of the many movies that have come out over the years regarding people with mental health um, struggles and stuff, it's always murder and, you know, the absolutely worst case scenario in every situation or, you know, that one news story that'll come out about somebody who was experiencing psychosis and attacked a random passerby and was so horrible and awful. And, and yeah, those things are horrible and awful, but they're definitely an outlier in terms of, you know, the amount of people having um, a mental health crisis in your city on a daily basis, you know, that happens once, once in a blue moon, right? So yeah, one thing I'd add to in terms of the climate we're at in Canada, the social climate is that there's a lot of awareness around uh, residential school, you know, residential school survivors. And I'm noticing like um, settler societies really um, ties into the reality that residential school survivors were at one point indigenous children. So you see the social commentary refer to children, um, forced removal of children, uh, impacts of trauma on children. But one of the big awarenesses I'm noticing amongst you know students who take my class and uh, undergraduates is that the realization that the stereotypes they've been informed about Indigenous people, uh, chances are you know the people that they see, the people that they interact with on the streets are struggling in life chances are they are residential school survivors or they are the children of residential school survivors. Um, and so that's why like, I really like what Emma said in terms of um, having to be mindful that, um, you know, that these are, these, are, these are human beings, like they are human beings. Um, and, and from our perspective, there are people. Um, so being super mindful that, you know, the uncle on the corner, the auntie on the corner, you know, likely experience trauma and, um, and how do we support them, um, in, in meaningful, wholesome ways that, that are safe. And again, for some people, they still view indigenous people on the corner are people going through struggles, um, as potential threats, um, police being one, right. And that's just like assuming the worst, uh, situations about our people. But again, from my perspective, it's like it's so important to shift that understanding that our people experience trauma, we experience colonialism, and it's really interesting to see like a younger generation emerge that make the make the correlation and the causation between you know homelessness and and um, people struggling in the inner city, uh, making that link to, as a direct result of colonialism and a direct result of residential school. Um, so perspective matters. Um, you know, being trauma-informed matters, even in context of this conversation, history matters. Um, there's really more than, uh, really more going on in terms of, you know, people's lives. And, and that does have to inform how we approach uh, crisis and de-escalation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, from a statistical perspective, uh, 74% of, of the population that we work with are direct uh, residential school survivors. Um, so yeah, being trauma-informed is incredibly important for any de-escalation situation, but particularly if you're dealing with, um, in the Canadian context, 
um, indigenous people, um, and in a broader context, anyone who is from a community that's experienced, you know, severe intergenerational trauma or systemic oppression, um, things like that. Um, and yeah, recognizing what's called a pain-based behavior um, is a part of that trauma-informed perspective to de-escalation or de-escalation, <laughs> sorry. So yeah, pain-based behaviors can be physical, um, emotional, um, spiritual. There's all different factors to it. We can experience pain in many different ways. Um, and so that's essentially a a behavior, an emotion, or a response that's that's coming from a place of pain. Um, so we um in the practice that I utilize both at work and in grassroots, uh, we kind of rely on an acronym known as HALT. Um, so you always want to kind of um consider whether or not a person is hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Um and that's just kind of something you're doing as a mental check-in with yourself. Um, so those are kind of like the key pain-based behaviors that will lead to an escalation. Usually it's, it's one of those four things that's kind of pushing somebody in that direction. Um, and that can also inform your practice too in, in regards to caring gestures and, and co-regulation. So trauma-informed then means not just looking at somebody on their terms, right? Not just looking at them in isolation, but also thinking about all the things that have influenced them, that have impacted them, that have brought them here. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of just approaching the situation with empathy and a broader understanding of of any and all encompassing factors that have brought this person to this point right in front of you in, at this moment. And so in speaking about crisis and we're talking about ways that de-escalation might be needed in ways that people haven't thought about, like de-escalating yourself. And I think another situation then is like not harming others, but harming yourself. So Emma, have you ever had to use what you know to intervene or stop someone from harming themselves? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, it, it, it it's a very similar approach as to what you would use to de-escalate another person or even yourself. Um, although in a way it can be a bit, I guess, easier. Um, if somebody's actively trying to harm themselves, um, that's a, that's a very clear case of a pain-based behavior. Um, right. It's, it's almost always an internally based factor. Um, and uh, co-regulation and, and caring gestures work amazingly in those situations, usually. What do you mean by co-regulation? Uh, so co-regulation is just kind of a practice of um, sitting with somebody in whatever it is that they're going through and uh, relying on your mannerisms, your emotions, your feelings, your responses to kind of guide theirs as well. Um, and vice versa, honestly. Um, so again, a lot of body language, active listening, um, validating uh, any kind of feelings or thoughts or emotions that a person is going through. Yeah. Mylan, I know you work with young people and the community a lot. How much of what you do is teaching emotional regulation? Because that's really what de-escalation is, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the things for me is um, evolves around in general, like emotional intelligence, like increasing, um, you know, people being mindful of, of their emotions and even what they're called. 
right? So from the perspective, um, from like the perspective of emotional intelligence, being able to speak to and identify that emotion clearly, and even to the point of where it physically shows up in the body, like, where am I feeling this emotion? Where is it coming up strongest? Um, and so being able to verbalize that, right, and, and recognizing them as, as from my perspective, from our cosmology and understanding as like this energy in motion, right, that, that, that this energy is coming up for a reason, express it, feel it in healthy ways, right? And, and I feel like that's really important in the climate we're living in right now as Indigenous people because there was a lot of emotional shutdown. There was a lot of um, emotional shaming even to the point of where in some of our communities, it's only safe to like experience happiness or anger. Right? It's like these, those are the two like emotions that you're often going to see physically expressed. Um, and then so like sadness and fear, you know, sometimes gets hushed hush even like around toxic masculinity and fear like you know there's there's very real like um toxic social norms that men men don't express their fear or express their sadness which which is which is a lie because right? emotions come up um so first step for me is always being able to identify the emotion um and and be able to put words to that and recognize that it's going to come it's going to go um and in terms of regulation i think it's, it's really important to to be mindful that um First and foremost, that you know, emotions are energy. They come and go. Um, validating that, speaking to that, and asking what's really like triggering this emotion. Like, where is it really coming from? Coming from? Why am I angry? Why am I feeling sadness? Um, or even being able to uh, regulate to the point of identifying what's what's beneath this. Like, why am I presenting myself in terms of like being angry? Well, what's really here for me is fear. Right. So I'm angry that, you know, something's happening. But what's really here for me is is, is a fear that something's going to get out of hand. So I'm responding in an angry way. Um, so this is all like emotional intelligence conversation. And uh, that's something I, I my family really fosters amongst each other, and especially with like the young children in our family now. And, and I get so happy when my my daughters are expressing emotion freely and openly. <laughs> Because there was a time in our collective history as Indigenous people where we weren't allowed to be emotional, where, where children weren't allowed to cry. Um, and and uh, so, you know, disrupting that. And, uh, and once that happens for me, you know, there is an emotional clarity, being able to think clearly, uh, being able to uh, problem solve effectively, um, like maintain a stronger sense of like situational awareness around, you know, what, what community am I working in and, and what's really going on here and how are we responding to things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for me, the foundation is first and foremost emotional intelligence. So then with feeling things like anger, instead of telling them, don't be angry or don't get angry, it's more about trying to put words to that, trying to understand where you're feeling that, where that's arising from. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Like, why are we angry right now? Um, what's coming up for us? Like, what, what, what's causing this anger to be so strong in this moment? And, you know, like, I, I like how Emma said, you know, HALT, the acronym HALT really comes in handy too for me working with children. Um, because, you know, that, that does sort of facilitate them being able to link that emotion to a circumstance or something that's going on in their lives. And then being able to problem solve that or, you know, contextualize that clearly uh, from the point of like an emotional clarity. Because people can, can't problem solve when, when you know, you're, um, like your emotions are coming up really strong, right? So, you know, being able to get that to that place of emotional clarity is really important. And again, just acknowledging that emotion, like it's completely fine for, for children or people to have emotions. <laughs> and and uh, I still kind of get baffled at, um, you know, 
uh, the conversation that uh, emotions are um, unprofessional, our emotions are uh, should be tolerated in certain spaces. And, and there's a certain extent of privacy with some emotions that people want to have. But at the same time, you know, as a father, I really want my daughters to be able to express themselves emotionally, clearly, and uh, openly. Emma, how do you put yourself in a state to even de-escalate or help others? Because I'm sure your adrenaline is sometimes pumping. Maybe you're in a fight, flight, freeze response. Uh, it's, it's definitely something that comes with practice, for sure. Um, but I think kind of the key to it is, is basically what we've been talking about is you really have to decenter yourself in the situation um, and center the humanity of the person, the situation, um, and their experiences that have kind of led them to this point. Um, and again, the the outlying factors, the pain-based behaviors, um, kind of how Mylan was saying, what a lot of things will present as anger, but if you kind of root into it, that's that's not what it is at all at its core. Um, and so you just kind of have to maintain a sense of self-awareness and understanding of that throughout the, throughout the process, essentially, and, and constantly check in with yourself and remind yourself of that. So to remember that it's not about you, don't make it about yourself. Be oriented on what's happening, the situation and the other person. Yeah, exactly. It's almost never about you, even if the person is making personal attacks against you verbally. And again, I'm I'm speaking in the perspective of of the community that I work with. Obviously, if you're approached by a Nazi on the street, that's a different scenario. But um, yeah, it's it's almost always has nothing to do with you, regardless of how personal it may feel. And so you really need to detach from that and maintain a a strong sense of self-awareness and, and like Mylan said, um, emotional maturity throughout the process as well, which is very difficult to do sometimes. It's a, it's definitely a, a practiced behavior. Then what are some unconscious things one might do to escalate a situation or even escalate themselves that people might not realize they're even doing? Yeah, I think the biggest one is body language and nonverbal communication. Um, we are always saying a lot more than than we think we are. Um, and so it's it's important to kind of maintain a calm and open um, body language and be mindful of your facial expressions. You know, um, I think that's a huge one. Again, that's kind of like a, a practiced behavior that you develop over time with self-awareness. Um, uh, also, like we were talking about before, being overly clinical and, and having a non-humanistic approach. Um, you're going to get the best results in a de-escalation if you're, if you're connecting with the person um, and talking to them as an equal one-on-one um, and just kind of showing up for them in a way that acknowledges you see them as a person and not as this, you know, big, scary person on the street or whatever. Um, Stranger danger. Yeah, exactly. Um, even when someone is presenting themselves as dangerous, that's the intention they're, they're conveying. Um, 90% of the time, if they realize that that's how they're being received, there's, there's an instant emotional reaction to that because it instantly brings up feelings of rejection or, um, you know, being less than or whatever. And so that 
that can make things quite a bit worse. Um, I think another one too is people like to try to rush to a solution or an outcome, an expected outcome. Obviously, it's, you know, an intense moment and you usually want to get it over and done with as quick as possible. But um, that can be a pretty big mistake to make, especially if you're kind of leveraging ultimatums or not listening to what the person is saying, not validating them, attempting to touch or disarm somebody prematurely. Um, touch can be a very useful uh, tool in de-escalation, but it, you really have to have the right rapport with the person and it has to be done in, the ver- in a very correct way. Um, and there's all sorts of nuance and factors there, um, of course, too, um, regarding consent and, and everything else. But um, yeah, attempting to touch somebody, even in a gentle way or disarm them prematurely, um, and then also, yeah, kind of what I was saying before, expressing fear or discomfort. It it can be very dehumanizing and it can often set somebody off even further if if they know that you perceive them as, as a danger or a threat rather than as a person who has very big emotions that, that need to be validated. Because even doing that makes the person feel othered. Yeah, absolutely. So for me... As a martial artist growing up in this world, I'm sure there's a lot of people when they're engaging in de-escalation, learning about it, there's a lot to unlearn because things I've learned and things a lot of people have been told that even in a formal setting, sometimes just from word of mouth or like somebody's giving you some advice about self-defense, the things that are common knowledge are forms of escalation, not de-escalation. Because oftentimes you're taught to attack first or make ultimatums or threats or immediately take a fighting posture when you feel uncomfortable or you're taught to talk with your hands. So your hands are up high so it could immediately turn into a fighting stance. And I think from this conversation, we realize those are all things that are actually escalating the situation, not de-escalating the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Um I think a lot of people who don't have experience with de-escalation kind of come to it assuming that the goal is to restrain or posture or be bigger and scarier. And that's how you successfully de-escalate a situation, which is absolutely not the case. Um, Like try to scare them off. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. Try to scare them off. Try to somehow wrestle them into submission, whether that be like literally in a physical sense or, you know, with words and actions. Subordinate them. Yeah. De-escalation is, it's not a moment for you to be a hero. Absolutely not the case. Um, And I think the concept of that comes from cop culture, unfortunately. I agree. Yeah. It's a lot of, uh, a lot of vigilantism, a lot of you know, people watching too many superhero movies and <laughs> everyone wants their, their time to shine, I guess. Right. But yes. yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely not the space for that. Um, almost ever, I would argue. Um, there's definitely going to be scenarios in which you do need to physically restrain or disarm somebody, but, um, that's also not something anyone should be doing without the proper training to do so. Um, that can be incredibly dangerous in itself to both you and the other person. So, yeah, I mean, in perspective of my work, we um, 
unfortunately make a small fraction of what a police officer's salary is. But um, we effectively disarm guns, knives, pipes, all sorts of things very frequently uh, without any kind of violent incident. So yeah, this notion that you need to immediately depend on violence, um, it's just not reality. So you're going to like the last resort right away. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if you are skilled in de-escalation, it, it almost will never come to that. Like it's, it's very, very rare. I can say in, in my experience doing this work and having to participate in multiple de-escalations almost every day, both myself and, you know, my coworkers or my co-organizers, it almost never comes to, to needing uh, a physical intervention of any kind. Yeah, I'd add to that too and, and say that in my experience, anything that is approached from the position of like authoritarian doesn't fly so well, um, <laughs> especially working with like indigenous ch children and youth um, because, you know, authoritarians are, are the colonizer and historically they've been the colonizer and uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't fly well at all. And, and, and I'm really like critical of educators or people who work with children who naturally, um, um, sort of appropriate, like an authoritarian approach. And the other one too, that, that is really prevalent that I really try. There's kind of that uh, instinct as a bystander to just get on the phone and call 911 immediately as soon as anything is happening. And, and that's definitely not what you should do as a bystander. Um, secondly, I think the, the best thing to do is to not spectate. And so by that, I mean, you don't want to kind of be, you know, ogling the situation as though you're watching a, like a prize fight or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah don't turn it into a spectacle, essentially. Um, I think it's important to, to kind of take a step back and survey the situation. Um, if you are worried that the person who is participating in a de-escalation might be at risk, keep an eye out, keep, keep, a, keep within a, a safe distance, but um, don't spectate, essentially. Um, that's always going to make things worse as well. It's kind of like that schoolyard fight feeling, right? Sometimes like I've had that situation in school where like I'm arguing with somebody, it's escalating, but I don't know if we're going to fight or not. But then when all the kids gather around, then I feel like now I'm obligated to fight this person. Yeah, that's for sure. And I think too, it just becomes like, again, very dehumanizing. Like if you think about yourself when you've been at your, your worst mentally in terms of how you're feeling, like we've all had moments in life where we're, you know, not doing great. Imagine if there was a crowd of people standing around you watching you in that moment and how vulnerable, scared, dehumanized you would feel. Um, yeah, it, it's just going to make things worse because, again, kind of how we were talking about earlier, fear often presents as anger. So if someone feels threatened or vulnerable in a situation because there's a crowd gathering, um, it's, it's probably just going to escalate them even further. Um, yeah, if, if you are kind of witnessing a situation where somebody is engaging in a de-escalation and they seem like they have it under control, just don't get involved, honestly. Um, one of the key components of, of effectively de-escalating is maintaining, maintaining a connection with the person. Um, and if you're kind of inserting yourself into that, there's a chance you might break that connection. Um, so yeah, again, as I was saying, you know, stand by keep an eye out in a, in a way that is not, you know, being overly uh, intrusive, but um, 
Yeah. And if, if, if they do seem to be struggling um, or escalating themselves, um, I would say it's good to attempt to engage in a non-intrusive way. Um, so a good way to do that, again, would be with a caring gesture. Um, you could, you know, ask the person if they want to step back. You could offer a cigarette again. It's, I swear by cigarettes. I don't smoke, but I carry them with me at all times because <laughs> they're a great tool. Um, yeah, there's, it's, it's very nuanced and you kind of have to read the room, so to say. Um, but yeah, I think there's kind of that, uh, the two main instincts that come up when you happen upon a situation in public, um, you either want to, like I said, get on the phone and call 911 or jump in and try to be involved in some way, which can be very harmful, especially if the person is, is, is handling it well themselves. So, um, and then, yeah, I think the last thing as a bystander would be, um, to follow up afterwards with the person who was de-escalating, uh, with the person who needed de-escalating, um, just follow up, offer support. Hey, how are you feeling? How, how are you doing? You know, um, again, kind of going back to that notion of community care that, that Mylan was discussing. Um, yeah, it's important to kind of follow up afterwards. So, so obviously this isn't talking about police or hate crimes or lynchings. But going back to that mom I was talking about at the outset, could she have been then unknowingly escalating the situation by intervening or making herself known? It could have been. It's hard to say. Um, I think it also was helpful, though, as you mentioned, that she kind of made herself known. It's again, it's very nuanced and you just kind of have to play it by ear and you're probably going to make mistakes along the way. Like no, no situation is is going to be the same as the next one. Do you know what I mean? It's all, it's all going to be very, very nuanced and uh, you just kind of have to navigate it as it comes. But uh, yeah. Let's say you're not an expert at the escalation and you're in a situation, let's say with a colonizer, are there any red flags that this is going to get violent? I'll jump in because for me, Again, like it's a matter of, of picking your battles. Um, like, you know, one of the common um, dynamics that unfolds up here in Canada is there's a known drugstore chain that hires security. And uh, this security, for whatever reason in their training or based off stereotypes, will always follow Indigenous people. Um, and, you know, on Facebook, on social media, you'll always see like indigenous people expose them and be like, Oh, you know, you can't shop here because they're always going to follow you. And it's very real. And it happens to me. Like <laughs> I, I guarantee you there's a 95% chance if I get off the call and go to that drugstore chain, I will be followed. <laughs> like that's how confident I am that, that, that event will happen. Um, but with that being said, it's, it's a matter of like, like picking your battles. And, and, and for me, um, I, I, I like when people expose the societal aspect of it, but I was I was just on a call with a friend today, actually, and, and he was saying that, you know, when it comes to non-Indigenous people, colonizers and, and settlers, is, is they have a system behind them. And um, at any chance where, like, something is at the risk of being reported or uh, collectively, like, addressed from the other side, I think it's safe to say, like, you know, withdraw, be mindful. Because, like, for me, you know, I always tell people, like, you know, if the police show up, there's going to be a bias there. 
you know, if they, if they get other people involved who, who are going to be able to um, side with them, um, there'll be a systemic bias there. Um, so I have to be really mindful of, of picking your battles. And um, obviously, like, you know, from the perspective of like, um, like guerrilla warfare, you want to live to fight another day. Um, like I would never go down, you know, uh, I, I would never go down uh, or be exposed or, you know, go into legal battles uh, for certain things that are just an everyday occurrence. Um, but at the same time, you know, having to be mindful that there might be situations where you know you can expose straight up blatant racism where you can expose um systemic issues very clearly and visibly and you know we experienced that as a family uh with my brother who was uh targeted um and attacked by a non-indigenous person in the local city and it, and it did make news it's out there like people could google this and uh yeah he was physically attacked you know he was um, basically jumped and uh, assaulted um, and it was all on camera and uh, was racially motivated and um, he he chose to you know step back in that situation because his daughter was in my niece was in the truck and um, so he completely chose to like disengage and um, not interact with it but we came together as a family and and uh, we had a conversation on whether or not he wants to release this footage and he chose to release the footage and it led to a lot of interesting local social commentary. And there's still like conversations happening about that incident. Um, and, you know, me and my, me and my, me and my brother-in-law who, you know, who roll constantly, uh, we were started our jujitsu journey together. Like we constantly like have the conversation of like, how would have we responded in that situation? And, uh, and it's really hard to say. So like, yeah, like, you know, Emma's correct in saying that it really depends on the situation that you're in and, what's going on in that moment and you have to be mindful. Um, and I agree with my brother's assessment of that situation. You know, my niece was in the car. He wanted to disengage and maintain the distance and he did um, fairly well. And, and the video's out there. I mean, it's out there. There's, there's some trigger warning involved in that video. Um, but yeah, at the same time, you know, the everyday occurrences for me, I'm super mindful because it just takes one phone call um, to the police that, you know, could mess up your life. Or, you know, you can piss off the wrong Karen. And I love how we call out Karens, but at the same time, that's still an act of violence that, that we're potentially exposing ourselves to. Um, and, and that we have to be really mindful to pick our battles in general. Yeah, I think a lot of people got so hyped up about like punching every Nazi they see. But to your point, right, you got to pick your battles. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree with everything Mylan is saying. And I think, yeah, being able to punch every Nazi you see is, is, uh, comes from a place of privilege for sure. Um, and like for myself personally, I have a white parent and I'm fairly white passing. Um, so I don't experience those types of situations quite as often as Mylan would or any, anyone else who's more racialized. Um, they do happen, but definitely not in the same frequency. Um, but yeah, I think the key is you have to know your own limits. Um, you have to be self-aware. Um, and, uh, for myself personally, um, in the work setting, um, and in organizing as well, I, I know that I can't deescalate situations where men are being physically violent towards women. Um, it's far too triggering for me. And so I can't deescalate myself in those situations. Um, and so a tactic that I rely on is, is communicating that well in advance with my coworkers and my co-organizers. Um, 
And, you know, if you're out with your friends or whatever, that you might not have that same kind of um, established relationship with them. But um, I would argue that you you should, uh, because part of building community and community care should be uh, educating each other on these things um, and establishing more of a community based response to to uh, situations of crisis, um, which tends to eliminate the need for police, um, which is kind of the ultimate goal. So, um, and then kind of like circling back to, to some key indicators that you are in danger um, and should probably leave the situation. It's um, if you can't make that connection with the person that I was talking about earlier, which obviously if it's like a racially motivated attack or, or any other kind of, you know, bigotry essentially you're you're not going to be able to make a connection with that person because they don't they don't see you as a person so they're invested in being disconnected from you absolutely so so yeah if you can't make that connection um it's probably best to just to just dip out um another indicator would be obviously if they're already kind of on the the physical attack um and then kind of again steering it to the more broader sense away from like a, um, you know, racially motivated attack or whatever. But if, well, not necessarily, but if somebody's in psychosis, um, I think it could be difficult to determine what psychosis is if you're not trained. Um, but it's a pretty, it's pretty easy to, to detect when somebody is kind of experiencing a break from reality, as you mentioned earlier with your personal experience. Um, but I would say if you're encountering somebody in, in a state of psychosis, they can be de-escalated, but it's, it's very difficult to do without extensive training. Um, if somebody's not experiencing reality, then it's going to be difficult to make a connection with them. Um, and attempting to force them back to reality, it, it often will make things worse. So I would say if, if you observe that somebody is probably in an advanced state of psychosis, I I probably wouldn't engage as a non-experienced person uh, in a situation like that. I think we should also talk about the overlooked parts of fight or flight, which is freezing or fawning. Freezing is obviously when you're immobilized. Fawning means seeking approval, which might be being overly compliant. We have to understand those are also survival responses. But we want to check in with ourselves to see if we're making a judgment call or if it's just an automatic response kicking in that may not be serving us. So as both of you mentioned, something as simple as checking in with yourself, recognizing how you feel, and even in that moment of recognizing you have bought time. Just thinking about de-escalation makes you stop and think, which buys time. And buying time can be for the immediate or for dealing with the immediate while still planning for the long term. I bought time. Should I go for a walk now? Should I leave the situation? Or maybe it's about putting out the immediate fire so you can plan for a long-term solution. These are just examples to help conceptualize that doing something in the immediate doesn't mean it should only be handled in the immediate. But check in with yourself. Make checking in with yourself a habit. Make checking in with others a habit. But ultimately, no one should judge you for whatever you did or didn't do because it was you in that situation and not anyone else. As far as self-defense, more than martial art techniques, 
the best weapons are your eyes, your ears, your mind, and your feet. Your eyes are so important to perceive your surroundings and your aggressor and to orient yourself. Same with your ears. What you hear can let you know if you're isolated. Did everyone clear out? Are there others around? Then having a clear mind helps you make decisions and quick plans. And your feet help you get out of there. And as far as techniques, generally, what's more important is your level of resistance than the actual technique. Resisting is more important than being John Wick. But resist to do what? A past guest said if the goal of self-defense is escaping, what's more important than parkour, the art of running around obstacles? And I think the point she was trying to make was, people don't spend nearly as much time thinking about the process of escaping as they do martial arts techniques, which is true. People also don't spend enough time wayfinding and orienting to their surroundings and knowing where everything is. I work on wayfinding with all the people I train. But combining this with Marxism, your conditions inform your decisions and your wayfinding. So how you escape depends on your conditions, which include your surroundings, but also your own personal state. But at the same time, your personal conditions also affect the situations and surroundings you are in. How I escape in a wheelchair will be different from someone who can run. But at the same time, if I am in a wheelchair, how I orient to the world and my surroundings will be different. And I will be constantly thinking about my surroundings and how it's not designed for me, which means I can't access or inhabit the same spaces as able-bodied people which means I will most likely be escaping a situation I was able to enter. So it's all context dependent and how people orient to their environment or what sensors they use to orient or even what environments they inhabit will be context dependent. Even having a stroller made me realize I couldn't inhabit the same space as I could before having a child. It's easy to say de-escalation is pointless, and that if someone wants to hurt you, they will, when for some people, that's the only tool they can use, or it's something they always have to try first. It's not just about whether you're able-bodied or not. Maybe you're always around your community, or you're always working. Then, again, you might be compelled to always try and de-escalate first, rather than gouging the eyes out of a community member or coworker. That doesn't mean de-escalation is the only thing you do, but it might always be part of the solution, if there's a solution at all. But part of wayfinding, even for dangerous situations, is exploring your solution space. It doesn't mean you have total control of the situation. Again, it's all context dependent, and there's no right or wrong. Your way is not my way and vice versa. The victim should never be blamed, and they aren't at fault. The victimizer is always at fault. But if you say de-escalation is not important or useful, my question is, for whom? Who is this person who lives in a situation where they never need to de-escalate? Even in a situation where someone is intent on isolating you to do you harm, slowing things down, or in a broad sense, somehow creating a moment of pause can give you an opportunity to escape. Maybe fawning can even be temporarily appropriate here, or the fight response. I don't know. But everything you do will take time. So to do something, you need time. And so who doesn't ever need 
to pause or buy time? Who doesn't ever need a little bit of cooperation? Are there any other times people might need to deescalate that they might not be aware of? Yeah, I think parenting is one of the biggest ones. Um, I personally use a lot of my deescalating strategies with my son. He's uh, neurodivergent and uh, is prone to very big feelings and very big reactions. Um, and it's important to make space for that. And uh, yeah, I think, again, kind of circling back to what Mylan was discussing earlier about adult supremacy and, and those things and expecting our children to be, you know, fully emotionally regulated beings when we ourselves are often not that. Um, yeah, de-escalation strategies and parenting, I think, is, is really vital, really important, both for de-escalating a child that is experiencing some kind of overstimulation episode or, or you know, some kind of um, big emotional response, uh, but also for ourselves. I think it's, it's super vital to kind of have those skills and, and fall back on them as frequently as you can. I totally agree. I know there's been times where my wife has had to tell me, maybe you should step away, let me handle this with regards to our son. And I've said the same thing to my wife, maybe you need to walk away from this. So there's definitely been times that we've had to deescalate ourselves or sometimes the spouse isn't around and I had to just kind of like, okay, let me just get away from him for a second, let him just play or do his thing. And then let me come back to this when I'm ready to handle this or maybe like save the battle. I'm not going to talk to him about this now. We'll talk about it later or even in our own relationship between my wife and I. Sometimes we've had to be like, okay, I need to go for a walk. We have to create some space and then come back to this later because we're both getting too like worked up, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, coming at it from the rural aspect, um, you know, in the communities I was working in, um, really it is the only community in some cases that, that will have to respond to, you know, family members or community members going through, you know, some kind of crisis, you know, mental health crisis, um, self-harm crisis, or, or, you know, something that, that, um, requires, you know, ideally, um, somebody to be present with the person that's going through it. And, um, yeah, having been in situations where, you know, we're called or, you know, my, uh, the place I was working at, we were called to respond to community crisis. Um, yeah, it, it shows up. It's definitely a skill that you have to be mindful of and, and begin to foster and hone in terms of like, you know, what happens if I get the call that, um, um, that somebody's, um, facing a very real challenge in their life. What am I going to do in that space? For me, when it comes to community care, and, and I know Emma stated it too, is that we, we want to avoid uh, police response. Uh, and, and, I, and I tell that to families. I tell that in the communities I work in is that, you know, the best person that could potentially respond to someone in crisis would be either a friend or a family member if they're willing. And to, you know, to hold that space until, you know, ideally, you know, some mental health professional or some mental health team can get there if the community, if the community has it, because not everybody has, um, not every community has those options. But it does boil down to literally being present with people, seeing where they're at, um, recognizing them as, you know, a, a living, breathing human being um, and, and, you know, not, not, not responding from a place of authoritarianism, um, not judging them. And, you know, literally talking and, uh, and, and talking in, in terms of like them literally being uh, a friend or, or a community member or a family member. And, um, 
and really identifying, ideally identifying, you know, the next steps forward. Like, for example, you know, responding to crisis that, uh, like uh, around self-harm, you know, having to talk people down, literally talk people down and, and uh, come up with a game plan and, you know, really shifting focus. And then also keeping in mind that you're, you're now, if it is a real aspect, if you're the only person that this person has access to in those situations, you know, you, you are technically going to have to help them. Um, in, in, in a longer run. And, you know, I still maintain relationships with communities I work with and uh, youth and, and community members I work with. And uh, we still plan, we still problem solve. Um, and again, that's not, and that's a very non-clinical approach. <laughs> that's not necessarily like a professional approach because there's always like a, a handoff or there's always like, you know, um, a referral. But when it comes to community care, um, you know, teamwork really does make the dream work. And I mean, families need to come together and ideally communicate in terms of the crisis they're facing or the crisis that people are facing or their their nieces and nephews are facing and openly communicate, you know, the needs of the family member, the needs of the person and, and come up with game plans to to ideally mitigate um, colonizer response, you know, like police response. Um, and, you know, I do see families doing that now. Like I do see, you know, the conversations on social media around like wellness checks and things like that. But at the same time, there's still lots of work to do. Like, that's why I'm glad you're having this conversation on de-escalation and, and even, you know, me speaking to community care. Because, I mean, there's a whole avenue that we have to explore and, and normalize in terms of responding to crisis. Because it is, it can be scary. Um, it can be very scary. Um, but at the same time, in my mind, um, all, for the times I did respond to crisis, I mean, I'm glad I did. Like, I'm glad I was there. I'm, I'm glad that I was there for, you know, those young people that were facing that crisis and talking with them today, you know, they, they tend to lean to say that, you know, they were surprised it was me. I surprised I showed up. Um, but again, like literally my goal in those situations was to be, beat the police there. Um, so, I mean, it, it really does like boil down to being mindful, having the community care aspect, knowing your community, knowing your friendships, uh, your friend community, knowing your family community. Um, and just being mindful that, hey, you know, I, it may be me that has to make this call. And so I may as well work on these skill sets well, well, uh, while I can. So I'm not, you know, so I don't have, at least I will have some tools in the tool belt for when something does happen. And it seems like, as Emma mentioned, right, one of the best ways to deescalate and something we all use and don't think about is checking in. You check in with yourself to deescalate yourself. And in that same way, I think when you check in with your community, check in with others, that is also a form of deescalation. You know, maybe somebody's going through something and then you just check in. You don't even know they're going through something. And even something like that can really help them. And I think another common way that this appears in our families, even in our friend groups, is through intervention, right? We sometimes even jokingly call it that, but what is that, right? We're like saying there's something happening, there's something escalating, there's something spiraling, and we need to talk about it as a group of friends, as a family, you know, maybe it's that tough conversation before the family seeks some kind of family therapy or couples therapy, or maybe somebody in the friend group is engaging in some kind of harmful behavior and is spiraling, or it's getting worse. It could be about substance abuse. It could be about, you know, you're not quite sure what's happening with somebody, but you're seeing them act in ways that they don't normally act and it's getting more erratic, right? And so we've done this before, but we never actually consciously thought too much about it. 
so we don't even do it as maybe as often as we need to, this act of checking in, of intervening, right? And so if we think about it as a process, as a form of care, then we could approach these things more thoughtfully, be aware that we use it a lot more often than we think we do. And if we realize we use it a lot more often than we think we do, then we ought to be more considerate about it, more thoughtful about it, get better at it. Did either of you want to add to that? Yeah, I just kind of wanted to add a bit onto uh, what Mylan was talking about with regards to like um, in rural settings, you know, you don't really have a lot of services or resources you can rely on, um, which is very true. Um, but in most uh, in most city centers, um, there are crisis teams that exist that operate independently of police, um, and it's important to familiarize yourself with those. Um, so if you ever are in a situation, um, that's who your first line of contact will be uh, before police. Um, for example, where I am, it's you dial two one one, and they send out a team of trained crisis response workers. They're not cops. They're not paramedics. They're not any of those um, institutionalized uh, bodies of of uh, oppression for for many people. And for a lot of people, just seeing them could be triggering, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're just frontlines workers, plain clothes. They show up. They often, um, yeah, have harm reduction supplies or food or resources or a plethora of resources that they can offer to people. Um, so that should always be your first line of contact. Um, so yeah, if you do live in a city center, I think it's important to familiarize yourself with what that phone number or, or contact line might be. Um, and then in addition, in, in rural settings, there are things that exist. For example, um, like suicide first aid training exists. Um, de-escalation training exists. These things can be inaccessible um, in regards to money and finances, of course. But um, yeah, I think um, if you have the means to do so as a community um, and come together and kind of, you know, designate some people that you could... Uh, provide access to those trainings and stuff to, to kind of be the, that resource person within that community. Um, yeah, I think that's a, an, important, an important solution as well, if it's within your means. Yeah, and then I'll even like exploring the option, depending on like what community you're in, like maybe maybe there is a need to create a team. Maybe, you know, collectively the community comes together and says, hey, we need people to respond to this and, you know, getting, you know, governance conversations going on on how that's going to happen um because i i worked in communities where there weren't teams and then you know later they decided they need to make some teams to respond and yeah it comes down like with what you were saying too sam is that you know families you know we we tend to know what's going on in our family systems and sometimes it's emotional no-go zones and we don't want to discuss it but I mean, if not you, then who, right? Like no one, if you're recognizing behaviors or patterns, then it, it's good to ideally have enough family care to be able to address them and uh, support one another. And that's very true for like, I feel like a lot of indigenous or, you know, uh, family systems that are more uh, communal based and more immediate based. And, and that extends to friendships too. Like, like I agree, it's like checking in with your friends, seeing what's going on. Um, if they're struggling times, you know, just see how things are going. Um, because yeah, there's also like this concept of like mapping out your, your, your society, like map, mapping out your, your kinship system. So, you know, that, you know, if something does happen, we have these people drawn and we know who's related to who. And, uh, 
And so like, that's a form of community mapping that is, uh, I would even say is even a form of wayfinding too, <laughs> looking at your work. Um, who are we, um, who are you be depending on and, and where are we existing as community members together? And just listening to this, especially thinking about the examples you gave about residential schools or HALT and how a lot of care workers, frontline workers will show up just with food. And you realize a lot of these crises comes from a crisis of need or a crisis of lacking. It's like squid games, right? Where people just don't have enough. They haven't been provided enough. They've been neglected or they've been oppressed and it creates this pressure. And that pressure sometimes erupts. It comes out in a way that people aren't able to contain or control anymore, right? And so by zooming out, we see that this is ultimately symptoms of a systemic problem, a societal problem that's been going back and it's historical to Mylan's point. So to be trauma-informed, to be care-informed, we also can't just look at the person. We have to look at these things and the history of these things that have been affecting our community and the people we know and the people we come in contact with. Yeah. So inherently, like in this conversation, obviously, there's a degree of anti-colonialism and anti-capitalism um, because like, you know, one of the big issues right now that I feel leads to a lot of commentary was on like economics and jobs, right? So there's like this whole big push for people to get jobs and job training, job center training, even like life skills pertaining to employment is a big one in indigenous communities today. But no one's really having like a very critical conversation around capitalism and around the reality that, you know, there's, there's very real systemic problems existing in our communities as a result of colonization. So it's almost like we're on a hamster wheel of like literally not addressing the bigger picture. And, um, you know, some people jump on that hamster wheel and want to run fastest. And and for whatever reason, um, that's that's their mission. That's their goal. But from the structural lens, you know, we really need to be willing to to foster a sense of community care that's politically conscious, um, that's socially and economically conscious uh, to, again, like really get to the root problems of why our communities are in crisis and uh and addressing those crises and uh, and again offering you know adequate and um quality uh community care approaches that, that you know could get these conversations going um because yeah you know a lot of the depression a lot of in my mind and even in my own life a lot of the depression and a lot of the um, struggle is the result of you know having to be uh, like a productive member of society or having to have a clear-cut career path um, but you know for indigenous people that's an ongoing colonial conversation we have internally is how are we going to survive and you know you, you even get to the point of where people are shaming um, our own people like our own people are shaming our own people for not working hard enough or you know like the bootstrap conversation or being unproductive I think bootstrap has leveled up to grind culture and that's really, I think, yeah, toxic and damaging. 100%, 100%. And it's even leveling up to like people, you know, believing in, in economic and, and social paradigms of like billionaires and, and things like that. And like just regurgitating some of the, the cheesiness that's coming out of that. But, you know, in my mind, you know, oppressed people are the hardest working people in the world today. Indigenous people are the hardest working people in the world today because, you know, so much goes into us trying to stay alive. So much energy goes into us trying to, you know, um, 
be able to to live another day, <laughs> like, like being able to stay on track um, because society was not designed for us and it was not designed by us. So the economic system was not designed for us. It's not designed by us. Um, and yeah, we're, we're all dealing with those, you know, those impacts on our mental health, on our family systems. And, and like, that's why all on my posts and my conversations, you know, I, I always say that we're all navigating this um, chaotic colonial world. Um, so the last thing that we should be doing is, is judging each other for, for trying to find our way forward. Um, so again, for me, like it really, um, depends on community care. Um, you know, the cheesy line of teamwork makes the dream work. Like that's my dad reference now because I always say it. Um, but there's a little bit of truth to that. Like we do need to come together as families and peoples again and, um, really shift focus to, um, identifying the the problems and, and addressing those problems. Yeah, just to expand on that a bit too, um, the same thing that Mylon's discussing in regards to this push for employment, we see the exact same thing in in regards to the push for housing as well. Um, there's uh, this really bad, bad habit of, you know, getting people housed by any means necessary, um, but then leaving them entirely unsupported in that. And uh, it, it becomes very isolating. Um, we see a lot of people returning to the streets, even though they have a home, they're still sleeping out in encampments every night because that's their community. That's their family. Um, and as indigenous people, that's, that's our lifeblood. That's so important to us, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, it's this colonial mindset of, you just need a job and a house and everything's going to be a-okay and you'll be just fine. And, you know, that's, it's, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, there's, yeah, that aspect of community care absolutely needs to exist. Um, and it becomes very cyclical because people will, you know, they'll get housed, they'll, they'll go to detox or, or rehab of some sort. And, you know, they'll be on the uh, straight and narrow, as society would call it. Uh, but then they get lonely and isolated and return back to, you know, hanging out with their street friends and visiting their street friends because, well, I shouldn't even say friends, it's family, street family. Um, and, you know, if those people are still using them, they get pulled back into that cycle. But it's not, it's not the substances that they're longing for, it's the community. So um, yeah, community care is vital, for sure. So I think we covered a lot in this episode. And I think this is a good way to get the conversation started. And hopefully, people will digest this and give us more things to think about. And that's how we'll end up covering this topic again. But before we wrap up, Emma, is there anything you wanted to plug or mention? Um, there's nothing personal that I wanted to plug. Um, but I do just want to encourage people to um, identify their local harm reduction focused nonprofits and, and grassroots organizations and initiatives and uh, support them. Um, the opioid epidemic is reaching a insane crisis point. Uh, thousands of people are dying um, all across Turtle Island. And uh, even locally, um, the Treaty 6 Confederacy has just recently declared a state of emergency. Um, we're losing about six people per day just in the city that I live in. Um, so yeah, and this is not just a, an issue that's connected to the prairies or Canada even. It's it's global. But um, yeah, connect to any kind of harm reduction focused nonprofit in your area, support them, learn what harm reduction is, um, carry naloxone and learn how to use it. And uh, carry a what? Uh, so naloxone is a it's an 
opioid reversal um, substance. Um, so you can administer it either uh, intramuscularly or nasally. There's two different options. It's very easy to use. You don't need any medical training. Um, and if somebody is an active overdose because of opioids, it'll reverse it almost instantly. Um, yeah, it saves lives. So it's important to have. Um, and yeah, just remembering that uh, our unhoused neighbors are still our neighbors. And uh, it's important that we're treating them that way. My area used to have a lot of low-income apartments. Since the pandemic, they've all been like, destroyed and they've put up these new luxury condos everywhere so that rich liberals here can do Airbnb. So I've seen some of my neighbors, as in people who lived in different apartments on my street, now actually on the street. Yeah, the uh, the pandemic has definitely exasperated it. And uh, the opioid epidemic and the housing epidemic go hand in hand. And if you look at the statistics, um, drug poisoning response or what is commonly known as an overdose, um, has pretty much tripled since 2020 when the pandemic started. So yeah, for sure, the pandemic has exasperated a lot of that, unfortunately. So it's important now more than ever to, to be supporting any kind of organization supporting the, those people. And Mylan, things you wanted to plug and also where can people find you? Um, yeah, I, I mentioned adult supremacy. My brother Colby Tatusis has a cool little article out and some of the work he does. So people could Google that. Um, and uh, also, you know, the incident that did, did take place with him. Um, so yeah, you can look inside if you want. But yeah, you know, listen to Radical Narrative. We have episodes coming out. Um, not, not really much other than, other than, you know, keep listening to Southpaw. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me again.